Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Good afternoon. Dr. Rob Dixon here for another episode of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. Uh, with me today is our Associate Medical Director, Casey Patrick. Good day, Casey. Hello, everybody. And as always, Andy Adams on the board doing everything technology. Um, today, guys, we've got a great show for you. We're going to talk about all things vasoactive agents and then kind of slide into push dose pressors. We just uh, recently brought those into our clinical practice, the push dose here at MCHD, and we're going to give you a little story behind that. I think that, you know, this is a great topic, Casey, because in our career, you know, it's kind of swung full pendulum, hasn't it? You know, when I started off in EMS 30 some odd years ago, it was uh, norepinephrine and then it was leave a fed and leave them dead. And then we had this pendulum swing. People were like away from norepinephrine to dopamine. And we kind of stuck there for about 20 years. And now the pendulum is kind of swinging back towards the other vasopressors, i.e. epinephrine and norepinephrine. And I think that likely, I think you brought up in CE when we taught about this this year, that it wasn't that norepinephrine was a bad drug 30 years ago. It's just the, we weren't filling the tank enough and, and we weren't optimizing the patients physiologically before starting the norepinephrine. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about this today. And we're going to start off on just talking about pressor physiology. So all these things aren't created equally. When we think back to our, our basic science of it, we have two different effects of these pressors. So inotropy and kind of the vaso, the inotropy or the, or the rate effect of them, and then the vasoconstriction effect of them. And it depends on which um, receptor is is being activated. Activated. Right? Thank yeah. you. Thank you, yeah, doctor. I'm, <laughs> see, I, I'm, I remember leave a fed, leave them dead, but it wasn't 30 years ago. It was only, okay, yeah. only 20 Sorry, I'm years dating, ago. I'm dating myself. Dr. Yeah. Patrick's a so, much younger yeah. fellow. So, Again, depending on which adrenergic receptor we activate, that's going to tell that's going to tell us the response beforehand. So we'll know kind of what to expect. Two types of adrenergic receptors, alpha and beta. We don't want to go overboard into a physiology lecture here, but if you separate out into the alpha beta activity of these agents, you can then sort of, you know, reverse engineer into what your effects are going to be. Right. So the alpha 1 alpha 2 receptors are going to be primarily a vasopressor or vasoconstrictive effect. So those are going to increase your systemic vascular resistance. And then your beta two, beta 1 receptor uh, stimulation is going to be primarily inotropy or that increased contractility, increased rate, basically overall increased cardiac output. Uh, beta 2 receptors want to mention just briefly because they're going to come into play a little bit later in the discussion. But those are going to be most significant for us in the pre-hospital setting in that they're found in the lungs and they're going to uh, activation of the beta-2 receptors is going to cause bronchodilation. And again, remember that later when we, when we touch on uh, anaphylaxis. A couple quick interjections uh, before we move into sort of our history with this here at MCHD and, and how we've introduced uh, the idea of push-dose pressors and really vasopressors in general for, for sepsis uh, and shock. Uh, is that we're not going to discuss dopamine today. Uh, the Is dopamine dead to us, doctor? I think the evidence is pretty pretty clear. The consensus is, is fairly strong that dopamine does carry increased risk of adverse events compared to epinephrine and norepinephrine, primarily arrhythmia. So we have taken dopamine out of our protocols here. There's plenty out there if you want to 
get more info on dopamine, but we're not going to belabor that point today. Secondly, some of you guys may ask about phenylephrine, and there I'm sure there are some phenylephrine users out there. Uh, we're not going to go in-depth on phenylephrine either, our reasoning behind that after, after looking at the, the literature and the data. And again, some of this is, is scant, and it's not all the best, but phenylephrine is primarily and or strictly an alpha-1, alpha-2 agonist. So we'll go back to the initial, initial part of the discussion, alpha-1, alpha-2 stimulation is going to increase uh, systemic vascular resistance, increase vasoconstriction, and with that you can get reflex bradycardia and decreased cardiac output. So in the situation of septic patient, we don't really want to go there either. So Right, and we, we kind of want, you know, I would love a one-size-fits-all tool, but we want to kind of minimize, as EMS medical directors, we want to minimize the toolkit we have to A, teach, and manage, and do quality on. And so I think that brings us back to who are the winners here. And, and so today we're going to spend a lot of time talking about epinephrine and norepinephrine, which are our uh, pressors of choice. So you want to dive into uh, to the epinephrine and norepinephrine? So. Some of this is textbook, um, you know, how individual patients respond to these drugs, I think, before we even get started with the details. It's important to know that, again, how the textbook reads and how response happens in vitro, in other words, in the lab or in the text. Versus in the truck. individual, yeah, each individual can vary. Can vary, sure. but we're going to kind of, you know, I often like to talk about a framework. I think you have to have a framework to start with any with any subject. And I, the framework really here is going to be, for epinephrine, you're going to have a little more inotropy and a little less uh, vasopressor effect than with norepinephrine. Norepinephrine has classically vasopressor effects or vasoconstrictive effects at lower doses, and you add that inotropy at higher doses. Again, the true clinical effects uh, can vary. Um, and again, one of the kind of the tidbits that keeps epi hanging around and keeps epi really an important tool in our box is that epi does have more beta-2 effect, and it's going to become, become really important when we talk about anaphylaxis. Yeah, as we talk about anaphylaxis, can we just kind of pivot back for a second and just do a quick review of the shock state? So, you know, different types of shock in kind of different kind of categorizations. I like to look at it very simply uh, as distributive, obstructive, hypovolemic, or cardiogenic. And so it's by mechanism. And in each one of those boxes, distributive would be more anaphylaxis, right? The pipes are loose, you're leaking fluid out of them. So sepsis, anaphylaxis would be a distributive shock, fluid, i.e. in the wrong place. Obstructive shock, or some obstructive process that's impeding cardiac filling or cardiac output. Pulmonary embolism, tamponade, tension pneumothoraxes, right? What's our, our goal there? Which is to buff up the blood pressure and try to fix the problem. Hypovolemic shock in, in a medical case would be uh, dehydration or in a traumatic case, uh, hemorrhage. And then cardiogenic shock or a primary pump failure, either from acute on chronic exacerbation of CHF, uh, maybe the patient's having an ischemic event and has uh, some pump failure. Uh, it can be from a, an infectious issue, a viral like myocarditis acutely. So that's kind of the basic four types of shock and then the subtypes that, that are the entities that kind of live within those subtypes. Yeah, I think you can you can look and find, you know, five types of shock, six types of shock. Yeah, yeah. I, I like to keep it simple. I think the four types makes the most sense to me because you start with the mechanism. And then if you think of the mechanism, then you can sort of branch that out. Yeah, it makes or, it easy for us to remember. Yeah, in, in, to, into, your, into your specific right. diagnoses. Preferred vasoactive agents for each of these shocks, sepsis, 
again, this is speaking in 2018. I'm sure in 2028, this will probably change just like a lot of the information did from 2008. But uh, I think the consensus now for sepsis is that norepinephrine is the preferred agent, and that is the our agent of choice for uh, vasopressor drip in septic shock or pre-hospital patients. Uh, anaphylaxis, on the other hand, if you think about your anaphylaxis patients, what are what are your symptoms that you see? You see urticaria rash, you see angioedema, lip, tongue, oral swelling, you see hypotension, and you also have the pulmonary effect. So you're going to have uh, wheezing and bronchoconstriction. So in this specific situation, we still are going to choose epinephrine over norepinephrine for those beta-2 effects and to achieve that, that bronchodilation. Obstructive shock, PE, tamponade, pneumothorax, we want to, like you said, bump the blood pressure up so fluid bolus is going to be really important in these patients, but really the, the primary treatment is going to be to remove the obstruction. And in the case of a tension pneumo in a traumatic patient, we remove the obstruction, right? The obstruction is the air, the pressure in the thoracic cavity from tamponade standpoint, that's going to require a pericardiocentesis. We're not performing that procedure here at MCHD anymore, but that's going to happen in the hospital. Yeah, because I think a lot of times what we don't talk about, and we're going to, we're going to talk about it in, the, in how we approach these traumatic cardiac arrests and our, our priorities in trauma, is I think it's a great thing you talked about preload, right? When we have an obstructive process, one of the ways that we can buy time until we can fix the problem is to buff up the preload, right? Increase that pressure with fluids to the right side of the heart. Yeah, and then the end game is going to be to remove Fix the obstruction. The yeah, Correct. again, so so decrease the, uh, remove the the pressure in the case of the tension pneumothorax, remove the fluid in the case of pericardial effusion, tamponade situation, and then PE, either break the clot down with, with thrombolytics or remove via thrombectomy. And again, those are going to be decisions that are made once we reach our emergency department hospital destinations. Hypovolemia, pretty pretty easy. Replace your your losses, right? If it's nausea, vomiting, diarrhea for three days, we need some we need some crystalloid, right? If it's GI bleed on Coumadin, then we're gonna need our coagulopathy corrected and transfusion. Cardiogenic shock, I put some question marks here on my outline. I don't So Brad Ward's not here, but do I need to go down the hall and get him? I, so I, I don't I don't want to <laughs> delve into the preferred okay. presser for uh <laughs> For cardiogenic shock, uh, it, it's all over the map, and I think that it's pretty split down the middle as far as epinephrine versus uh, norepinephrine. And for from our standpoint at MCHD here, after looking at the literature, going back to what you mentioned earlier, it's tough to carry drug after drug after drug, teach drug after drug, manage side effects of multiple drugs. So from from my standpoint, I think that norepinephrine is my pick for today. I don't have a wonderful randomized double-blind controlled study to cite. You have expert opinion from Brad Ward. There you go. Or cardiovascular. I don't have any ex <laughs> expert opinion. No, no way. No way. So, again, it, this it, brings us back to why do we pick norepinephrine? Right. What's the most common, right? We're, we're looking for, you know, we asked Brad about two years ago uh, when we looked at, at getting a new presser. At that time, we just had dopamine is to pick a winner. Right, pick one that is going to be the best agent in most types of shock, and he, he picked norepinephrine. And why did he pick it? Because our most, most common type of shock that we encounter and we use this for is distributive, is sepsis. Far by, and away. By far, yeah, far and away. Um, it's questionable the literature of which one's better, epinephrine or norepinephrine in a cardiogenic. I won't parse hairs with that now, but I think uh, 
as Dr. Patrick said, carrying two agents versus other multiple agents for each little niche has probably has some benefit uh, from the teaching and QA standpoint. And for, for listeners, non-MCHD listeners out there, uh, Brad is our most, most wise uh, clinical department uh, cardiac care uh, coordinator. So we, we rely on him to, uh, to make us sound smart there you when go. we talk about yeah, these things. So, so Epi is still an option. Um, we go with norepinephrine here. Uh, for cardiogenic, we go with norepinephrine. I think you can make an argument for epinephrine there as well. But I think the literature is fairly clear that dopamine loses in all these categories. So it's epinephrine or norepinephrine. Yeah, and just to just to be clear and to uh, to reiterate this discussion of shock and preferred vasoactive agents in shock and our approach here at MCHD, we're speaking specifically toward pressor drips, right? So Correct. you have a patient with a fever of 102 productive cough, SATs in the mid 80s, and a blood pressure of 70. We're gonna start with a fluid bolus and progress fairly rapidly to a vasopressor drip, specifically norepinephrine in our protocol. And that's been, you know, we've really evolved and, and moved towards norepinephrine, removed dopamine in the past two years or so with the, right. with the introduction of, of sepsis alerts and, and really focusing on sepsis as a time-sensitive emergency. So we're gonna pivot a bit and talk a little bit about our choice for push-dose pressors. And admittedly, I was the loser in this, uh, in this discussion. I, I fought strong and hard for norepinephrine as our push-dose presser, but logistic reasons, I think very real and reasonable, I think I lost appropriately, I should say. Uh, caused us to go with epinephrine. Why did we, you know, where do we, where do we come down there? So I think, I think it's twofold. I think we have to go some of the history of why we adopted push dose pressors. Um, for some of the listeners that listened to Dr. Jarvis's uh, interview and piece on, on delayed sequence intubation and the avoiding hypoxia clinical bundle surrounding uh, our intubation, one of the things that we looked at once we looked back at that process is that we didn't really address the other killer during intubation, which is hypotension. So people that are hypotension, we give them um, sedatives, we give them paralytics, right? It's a very, very dangerous position to be in to start there. And so we wanted to address that specifically at MCHD, fixing that. So we did well fixing the hypoxia problem. Um, during intubation, but we really hadn't, we didn't give the medics a tool to fix the hypotension. Yep. And so again, as a, as a norepi fan, what, what I came to realize is where do we intubate these patients? We don't intubate them in the truck. We intubate them oftentimes in the house on the scene. And we don't have all the meds available at our right hand and our left hand to reach and grab. So you got a single bag of fluids. You can't mix your norepinephrine drip in that single bag. You can't carry 10 bags of fluids or, you know, everybody's shoulders are broken down. Um, you need that single IV saline bag for fluid bolus. So cardiac epi is always handy. 10 cc uh, saline syringes are always handy. So it's just much easier for us to mix and carry and have that push dose presser available with epinephrine than it is uh, with norepinephrine just due to concentration and, and availability uh, reasons. Yes, we use this as a bridge. And can you talk a little bit, so we talked about peri-intubation, hypotension, trying to keep patients safe and, and buffing up their, augmenting their blood pressure uh, during the peri-intubation phase. Can you talk about uh, where we utilize push-dose pressors clinically? Yeah, really, two, uh, other places? two main scenarios, um, two scenarios really that we've, that we've used so far. And that's going to be the peri-post-intubation hypotensive patient. Again, we talked about, you know, the intubation 
uh, killers and hypoxia, hypotension, and acidosis being the three big ones. We've uh, discussed DSI with Dr. with Dr. Jarvis, and we've we've uh, hammered that home here on our podcast already. But we really hadn't addressed hadn't addressed the hypotension, and so that's that's scenario one. The other is the the peri post arrest patient, right? And that's that one that you right. You're you, still in the house. You're still working them. Um, we've the all drips seen. Are in the truck. You know and, what's coming. You right, see and, Brady and, down. You see you know you see the uber sick patient, ashen, diaphoretic. Uh, you know you all the signs are there. And with our protocols written as they were before, we had to wait for the patient to arrest before we administered a vasopressor, more epinephrine. When we knew that we could augment the blood pressure, it could potentially be uh, potentially be a helpful agent. So we've you know, really targeted that peri-post-arrest uh, patient along with the peri-post-intubation hypotensive patients. And again, these two are really probably our two most critical patients. Absolutely. So we're not push, you know, we're not administering push-dose pressors to the GCS 15 awake and alert you know, with a little soft blood pressure little, in the UTI. Exactly. Yeah, no. Nope. That's not, that's not who we're targeting. <laughs> so a little bit about our protocol guys, and we're happy to share this. We can put it on the show notes or if you email us at the podcast email, we'll get this to you. But the way that we do it here is we take a Brista jet of one to 10,000 cardiac epi. Um, we squirt out nine CCs and we draw up nine CCs of saline making a one to 100,000 uh, concentration. And the dose is very, very simple. It's uh, two milliliters, um, Q1 to two minutes in adults and one milliliter in kids. And so that would be 20 micrograms, Q1 to two minutes in an adult patient and 10 micrograms, one to Q1 to two minutes in kids. We use it as a hard stop for blood pressure systolic blood pressure with the goal of getting the systolic greater than 90. In intubations, right? In so, intubations, correct. So, so we, we created a hard stop for hypoxia. So with the DSI procedure that we've implemented, we have to have our O2 sats above 94% before we administer a paralytic. And we inserted a second hard stop with our second quarter CE session. And that second hard stop, again, just like Dr. Dixon just said, is 90 systolic. So before we proceed with paralysis, we have to get that systolic pressure above 90. It's not not rocket science, right? If you're hypotensive before intubation, you're more likely to have cardiac arrest afterward. If you're hypoxic before intubation, you're more likely to have cardiac arrest afterward. There's plenty of uh, wonderful literature out there that can support that. I, I like to keep it as simple as possible. Again, hypotensive, hypoxic patients die with paralytics. And if you think about it, you know, we've got our own natural epi norepi drip going on, right? That's our adrenal glands. And when we're in respiratory distress, when we're pericardiac arrest, our adrenal glands are going nuts, right? They're secreting all the norepi and epi, epi that we've got. And if we take away your sympathetic drive with ketamine, with a medication like Atomidate, if you use that out there, and then we give sucks or rock or another paralytic, that all that does is turn off your natural epi and norepi drips. And it's, it's no surprise that that blood pressure is going to bottom out. The hypoxia is going to worsen at that point. Again, don't forget our other interventions. Push those pressors are just an adjunct. Don't, don't let everything else go out the window. Remember the rule of 15s and proper pre-oxygenation, nitrogen washout with intubation. Fluids, again, are still going to be an important foundation and cornerstone. I think, again, speaking to what, what Dr. Dixon mentioned at the beginning, Leave a fed and leave them dead was probably not an entirely entirely the fault of norepinephrine. It was the fault of the clinicians not not filling the tank. So, in these patients that we know are septic and we know are sick, we want to get the pressors on board early. But it's got to be in conjunction 
and including adequate fluid bolus. And if that means multiple IV place, if that means IO placement, we got to get our fluids going at the same time. Proper uh, ROSC, proper uh, CPR care. So once the patients, once we get return to circulation, got to make sure that we're hitting all the other check boxes on our post-ROS checklist. And again, proper hospital notification if we got a sepsis alert. Time-sensitive emergency, just like stroke, just like trauma. Uh, we got to get, get, get the hospital sepsis teams involved, antibiotics, cultures, all those things that, that we know are going to happen once we, once we arrive at the hospital. No, I think that's a great uh, place to kind of take it home and just kind of summarize the, the highlights of, of, of vasoactive agents and, and push dose. So remember, there's two sides of, of every uh, vasoactive agent. So uh, the, the vasopressor and the inotropy chronotropy, right? So pick your uh, presser of choice. Ours are uh, norepinephrine for everyone except for anaphylaxis and post-cardiac arrest. We tend to use more epinephrine. Uh, dopamine is dead to us. I think there's good evidence that it's probably not uh, beneficial for patients to continue carrying that in the truck. And so we've discontinued it. Know those four types of shock, right? Know the four basic types of shock and all the subtypes that fit in that. So obstructive, distributive, hemorrhagic, and cardiogenic. Hypotension plus intubation equals death. Hypoxia plus intubation equals death. So we got to avoid them at all costs. We, we, don't, yeah. we like to avoid yeah. death around here. Uh, remember your hard stops, 90 systolic. If you're not there, get it up before you push your paralytic. Hypoxia, 94. If you're not there, pre-oxygenate better. Rule of 15s get it there before we push the paralytic. And again, don't forget the basics. We, we like, we being emergency providers, love new shiny toys, but the, the old school train in the wagon got us, got us across the country, right? Don't forget IVIO access, multiple, you know, go to an IO quick. If you're, if you're trying to search for peripheral IV in a patient with a pressure of 70, that looks dry as a bone, right? Don't bother. Don't bother. Uh, don't, don't have six, you know, six sticks on the way into the hospital and arrive without IV access. Remember, you know, remember that, that fluids and fluid bolus is, goes hand in hand with presser use. Right. And especially in these trauma patients, you know, it's really hurt my heart, um, to teach a guideline that a peri-intubation trauma patient with some hypotension, you know, just hurts my heart to give a trauma patient a vasoactive agent. But that being said, as Dr. Patrick said, that's just a bridge. Don't forget your fluids rare. The mainstay that we can offer or for those bleeding hemorrhagic shock patients, trauma patients, is volume replacement. Volume replacement. So don't ignore and, volume replacement. And, and short scene times, you know, rapid rapid transport to the hospital. It's still going to be, their, their definitive care is still going to be the, the, the scalpel, the operating room, tying off the bleeders. And remember that push dose pressers are just a bridge. Not a bridge to nowhere, but a bridge to the truck. And once we get to the truck, we don't want to push pressers all the way to the hospital, we want to start start our drips. So I think that, that about sums it up. Anything else you'd like to add? No, no, I think that was a great review and uh, really appreciate everybody listening today. Um, for Dr. Patrick and Andy and I, um, we will see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.